0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Brewford and Seems a Lifetime Ago, Part 1. And that's one of the highlights from the new Bill Brewford box set, Making a Song and Dance. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Bill here to talk about that set and key moments from his career. So let's hear my chat
2: with Bill. Recording in progress. Got it. Jason Barnard. It is a pleasure to see you, Bill. Hello, Jason. My pleasure too.
1: The interesting thing for me about making a song and dance, the collection... Yeah. The way that the box set is compiled, you, you've stuck away from trying to fit it into so-called musical styles and actually more about collaborated with other artists or you as a leader. Yeah,
2: this is, you know, the way, the way drummers work. I think I think people tend to think, you know, drummers slip wrists, mingle blood, join Led Zeppelin forever and job done. It's, in fact, a little more complicated like that than that. And people like me um, go between various ways of working with people, often with a leader or as a band leader or, or for a leader or without a leader. And these are these are often different ways of looking at the way you're going to approach the music. And so the box set is, is divided along those lines. So the, the first line is all about collaboration with, with groups. Um, and then a lot of music from me as a leader with Bill Bruford's Earthworks or the band Bruford and quite a lot of music as uh, a special guest where you're working for a leader. Uh, So what I'm playing there is not really my own choice. It's basically what what will make the music work. And finally, as an improviser where on the whole, you're working without any kind of leadership or direction at all, other than what's going on in here. And uh, that enabled me to kind of chorale all this vast body of music into some meaningful sense and uh, if you don't understand a word I'm talking about don't worry because it's all explained in the book the accompanying book
1: that's great to hear and it seems a, a theme of your musical journey even back in the early days in the late 60s that you didn't necessarily take the easy options I understood you had a you know the opportunity to play pro in soul bands and that kind of thing but you decided to continue with the group that ultimately became yes even though they weren't established at the
2: time oh yes you know you uh, you why do you answer some phone calls and agree to do some things and not others uh, when you're a young person have no idea what it is you're doing uh, probably you make a lot of mistakes but as a matter of intuition you say oh well this guy John Anderson and this guy Chris Squire uh, seem like their hearts in the right place and they seem very adventurous. Whereas this other guy over here, I might say, I can't see how I could work with you, really, because we'd only last about a week together. And in fact, in the Savoy Brown Blues Band, one of my early efforts, we lasted a little less than a week, about three days. (laughs) So that presumably was a wrong wrong decision. But there are, of course, no wrong decisions. You're learning all the time about everything as it goes past.
1: And your drumming style, even in that early period, seemed different to your contemporaries that were more straight-ahead rock style. You know, you were more
2: adventurous on the kit. Uh, that's true. I came from a jazz background, uh, which formed me in my formative years. And somehow, I don't quite know where I got it from, but I thought my idea, or I thought what you were paying me to do was to, was to move the music forward in what became progressive rock and that I was supposed to think of new things to do on the drunk kid. That uh, didn't everybody did, and I didn't have to be like anybody else. In fact, there was a great premium put on differentiation in those days. You know, we were in, in the early progressive rock days, we were keen to be anybody at all, so long as we were not like anybody else we'd ever heard.
1: And you said that um, in that period you were in, yes, that Heart of the Sunrise was um, a track where you felt that everyone was contributing and and was, in a way, one of the peaks in in your time in the group.
2: Um, Yeah, one of the peaks, certainly. But more importantly, I think it was a sort of template, the first time we hit a home run for what it is that the band was then going to do. Until Heart of the Sunrise, we were a covers band trying to be a progressive rock group and not quite knowing how. Uh, and until after Sunrise, I think, I think we were a, a fully fledged, proper progressive rock group with, you know, a background. We knew what we were doing after that particular song.
1: How did you um, work in the studio in that time, recording material such as that? Was a, a lot of it improvisational or, or was it more that band members had sort of key themes of whatever
2: that you just augmented? Uh, there are degrees of all those things, a complicated answer. I'd say we got in there and pushed and shoved, really, for our own sort of ideas. So somebody would come with a a chord progression and start singing something that wasn't very good, maybe. And then somebody would say, well, that's not very good, but how about if we did this? Uh, So the thing would take a step further forward. And then Rick Waitman would say it would all sound a whole lot better if it was in a different key, and we changed the key. Agonizingly slowly. And then somebody would say, well, I don't know about the base, you know, should it be doing an F sharp there? And there would be a committee decision on more or less on whether the base should be doing that there or not. So you can see how slow, tedious, boring, and expensive the entire process was. And while we were constructing these things, we didn't really know what we were going to get, we only knew what it was when it was finished. That's common in most artistic endeavors.
3: so
1: so one of your reasons for leaving Yes was that artistically it didn't have the freedom that you wanted then?
2: Not really. I wanted to do something else. Right. I was very young. I'd only seen four or five people, played with four or five people. I'd not effectively played in public before Yes. So it was my first band, very much my first girlfriend. And I just wanted to look around a bit, totally natural. I didn't want too much repetition. And I had a sense that I was going to go around the world playing close to the edge forever, so... I thought maybe I wouldn't want to do that.
1: How did you join King Crimson? Was it something that you, you saw a gap or Robert asked?
2: Or... Yeah, well, a bit of all these things. No simple answer. Uh, I loved the band. That was the first thing. Yeah. I let it be known that I wanted to play in the band, um, but the, there was a drummer, Ian Wallace. I think Mike, Ian Wallace was Mike Wallace. I think it was a newscaster. Um, Ian Wallace, I think, was the drummer at the time, and um, he was good, but... We were playing together in the States. I think was a co-headline, double headliners, you know, one night King Crimson would headline, the other night Yes would headline. And uh, I, I let Robert know that I'd really like to play. And eventually at the end of a tour, he, he wanted to change the group around. After his sort of Earthbound era, I think it was called Earthbound, the record right. at the time, and, and then we reconvened a few months later and did Lark's Tongues in Aspic.
1: One of the interesting things about that period, group the King Crimson, was was having a, a second percussionist, and, and that really comes out on Lark's Tongues in, in Aspic, for example. How was it working with someone like Jamie Muir? Uh,
2: w- well, it was uh, it was exciting, uh, highly unpredictable. I'd never been anywhere like that before in a group where I had to accommodate another drummer at the same time. Uh, all fantastic learning experience, all exactly what I left, yes, for, to be in a position where I was uncertain. I strongly recommend to any young listener, young performer who might be listening to this that it's essential that twice a year as a musician, you put yourself in a position musically where you have absolutely no idea how to fulfill the brief or how to play the music properly. And it took a while for me to find out certainly how to work with Jamie and then he left and then I was on my own anyway so
1: And in terms of leaving King Crimson just a few years later, was it more kind of the fact that Robert at the time was, or had become certainly by Red, more difficult to work with from a personal perspective? No, I
2: didn't leave the band. I didn't leave the band. The band left me. Right. Left me and John in the sense that uh, Robert didn't want to run it anymore. So uh, we got used to a a whole series of events whereby a band would typically, one one of the editions of King Crimson would typically run for... Uh, three or four albums or three or four years, maybe there'd be about a seven-year hiatus, and then we do it again, and then another seven-year hiatus. And every time, you know, the music uh, environment, the music media, the sounds of music and popular music would move forward, yeah. and King Crimson felt it would jump on board and, and help with, uh, you know, new techniques and new ways of looking at things.
1: There's also quite a few notable collaborations, but with other artists under the special guest banner. One of those is Chris Squire on his Fish Out of Water album. Yeah. I assume the obvious thing to say was, was that because you'd worked with him previously? Uh, Oh, no, it's because he asked me.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So so I said yes, which is usually what musicians do. You very seldom say no. Right. So I said yes, and, and we made quite a good record, I thought. Not bad at all in his home studio.
1: Because that was a solo project, was it easier for you in a way that you could just kind of take direction,
2: uh, or was it more difficult? Uh, good, good question. I think, yes, if you're working for somebody else, you and it's clearly their record, then you have a little less emotional involvement. You're not being asked to write the music. You're not being asked to design the music in any sense. So to some degree, there's less of you in the recording, uh, and that, sometimes that's nice. Yeah. You know, if, if you if you just come out of King Crimson, where you're emotionally drained, generally speaking, and you've given everything you possibly can to play with Roy Harper on tour or Chris Squire or Steve or something, Steve Howe, uh, it was, was a bit more relaxing, yeah. In that
1: period also, you um, worked with Roy Harper, as, as you just said, and Roy's actually said in retrospect that the band that you had there with him, Chris Bedding, uh, Dave Cochran, that, that was actually a band that was one that he should have kept together. Do you recall how good it felt playing with that group?
2: Uh, it, yeah, we were a pretty solid crew. Yeah, we had a nice tour, I think, in 75, probably did Nebworth, I think. Good stuff. And I probably would have continued. Well, I'm not sure how long I would have continued because I was gravitating towards my first band, Brewford under my own name. When I use that name, Bruford, it sounds a bit funny when I say it, but think of it in the context of bands like Santana, you know, or Argent Rod Argent's band or Carlos Santana's band. It was along those, that's the word, way I was thinking of it. Um, so I was working towards that, and I'm not sure how much more special guesting, inverted commas, mm. um, I would have done prior to forming my own band with Dave Stewart and Alan Holdsworth and Jeff Berlin.
1: So by then, you'd had 10 years, I assume your, your confidence as a drummer had increased by then?
2: Yeah, I didn't, I've never been lacking in my confidence as a drummer much. However, my confidence as a band band leader, and as a writer of music, were in two areas, two key areas, entirely untested. So um, it was a bit of a shock, running your own album, gets the clock, you're paying, clock's ticking, and how do you produce a session? Not, necessarily easily when different people want different things and so on and so forth so a degree of delicacy came into it and um in that band on the recordings of feels good to me and one of a kind i think i spent much more time worrying about what everybody else was playing rather than what i was playing so i sort of did the drum played the drums as an afterthought really
1: And in that period, you you were in UK and that's represented on, on the set by Nevermore. But I've read that that was a situation where there was kind of different camps in the group, one which wanted a bit more of a commercial edge and, and another side, uh, including yourself, that wanted to sort of be less commercial and just plough your own
2: furrow. Yeah, I suppose so. And you could say that that artistic fault line was embodied in the group in the very first place. And you could probably see that before the album. And you say, you say to yourself, well, this might not last much more than, you know, an album and a tour. But you go ahead with it if, if, and only if, you think that what comes out of that album and a tour is going to be world-busting. And to be honest, just introducing Alan Hosworth to our, our American friends was just great. You could see mouths dropping, you know, uh, among Aldi Miola and John McLaughlin and the great guitar players of the day. So uh, watching him at work was worth the price of admission on the big American tours. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned earlier about the different periods where you were going in and out, or certainly in in the King Crimson camp. You've got material from the uh, Free of a Perfect Pair represented. On the outside of that, it seems like um, things were a bit more collaborative in that period in terms of the compositions, for example. Was that actually the case at the time?
2: Uh, more collaborative than what? Uh, than how it was. I mean, been, for Red, for example. Um, no, no, King Crimson's always been a collaborative right. idea, uh, and Robert typically would sketch out some ballpark area of how we might perform. That we would probably play on the pitch rather than off the pitch. We, you know, the problem with musicians is what are you not going to do? That's much more exciting than what are you going to do.
1: Right.
2: Think of it. Think of it as that way round, and typically Robert would illustrate. Uh, that his particular plan or pathway which we didn't have to do it was just only a suggestion with a couple of compositions or two and a half compositions and we take it from there and uh, expand on that idea he was looking to us i think to elaborate upon some good solid ideas at the beginning so that it's always been a collaborative group i wouldn't have thought it was any different in in the 1980s uh, we had a good songwriter though with us adrian blue um so he was terrific and had a thankless job of trying to find lyrics at the last minute of the recording sessions. You know, it's always the way, torture for a singer. Uh, so no, not more or less, it's just more of the same. The way of working with Robert was was something you got used to.
1: How did you uh, link up with Patrick Mraz? Because your collaboration with him is also on the set.
2: Oh, well, again, I'm, almost everything's on the rebound from something else. So I think we would be about 1984 or something here. We'd had about three or four years of King Crimson with some heavy electronics and some real sweat with early Simmons electronic drums. And, uh, different, you know, King Crimson's great, but it's not easy. It's not an easy band to be in. And I think on, on the rebound from that, I 200 yards down the road, I had a neighbor, Patrick Maras, uh, who I knew played with Yes and so forth, a uh, very good pianist, and we thought, I suggested to him, why don't we make an album called Music for Piano and Drums and just play simple piano and drums? How much easier can it get? Plus, we can go on tour, and somebody can provide a rental drum kit and provide a piano. I mean... How easy is that? I probably made more money with Moraz Brewford than I did in King Crimson around those times. So, uh, and that was a, f- a breath of fresh air and introduced a, a solid improvising string to my bow.
1: And in the mid-80s, you also set up Earthworks as well, and then that's represented again by some great tracks, like It Didn't Need End in Tears, which have got a bit more um, a melancholic edge. What was the yeah. your concept at the time for Earthworks?
2: Funnily enough, it's not... It didn't end in tears, which is quite a good title. <laughs> it's it needn't end in tears, which is another good title, but aren't they completely different? Funnily enough, mm. uh, what was your question? It was a good question. So just what was the concept behind Earthworks? Oh, well, simple really that the drummer would play the tunes and the chords on an electronic drum set, and the other guys would be three single line instruments. Uh, so, in other words, not really capable of doing chords, much that being saxophone, bass, and E flat tenor horn. That was, as it were, the blueprint that we were talking about earlier. Now, that was if almost unachievable. It, we achieved that only in parts, but even so, there's nothing wrong with having a, an aim which you don't quite uh, achieve, but your, your spirited attempt to achieve it will nevertheless throw up some interesting music. And at times that we did really use electronic drums to be able to play harmonies such as Stromboli Kicks or uh, Candles Still Flicker in Romania's Dark or Pilgrim's Way, lots of tunes, then it really was an unusual sounding outfit. But it was a jazz group.
1: As you say, you were experimenting with an electronic drum set at the time. That the Simmons and there's some great footage on TV and on Micro Live there where you're demonstrating the kit. Was it a case of actually compared to acoustic drums at the time, there's just a broader range of opportunities with the electronic set?
2: Uh, more than that, it's an entirely different instrument. Yeah. I mean, there is there is a there is a relationship between a, a a Bosendorfer grand piano and a Fender electric Rhodes piano, but it is tenuous. Yeah. It's only a remote connection. Electronic drums have almost nothing to do with uh, acoustic drums at all. They can do different things. And that's what you want to use them for, to be completely different with them, which I think I managed to do a bit.
1: And then um, in later years of Earthworks, you moved back towards an uh, acoustic sound. Was it a case that you'd done uh,
2: electronic drums? Um, uh, Part of that, part of that, but it's uh, probably logistical. You know, there's an old adage that says, you get the music you pay for. The problem with electronic drums in jazz is that the logistic problems of of, of freighting them every day on an airplane and expecting them to survive as they come up on the conveyor belt and baggage claim in bits and pieces is too difficult. It's too too hard to freight freight them about. Whereas um, I can get an acoustic drum set of high quality anywhere in the world. So just to make my life easier, Uh, I think we really, for logistical rather than musical reasons, we down or step sideways uh, to a sort of muscular acoustic fusion, uh, which I was very inspired by Dave Holland's quintet at the time and also Joshua Redman, who had this one ballsy fusion, as it were, but very acoustic.
1: And did how you composed the groups change over time with Earthworks? I know that you, I think you used MIDI quite a bit in the early years. Did that change?
2: Yeah. You did? well, once once we've got rid of electronics, uh, well, I don't know. Come to think of it, uh, I think the I think the main thing to point out is having a partner. So, so Lennon and McCartney, you know, that I have always worked with somebody, partly because my rhythm ideas are strong and my harmonic ideas are less good, and I can often be with a pianist whose harmonic ideas are very strong and rhythm is less good. In other words, the converse. So. Uh, Dave Stewart, I worked with a lot in the Bruford band. Steve Hamilton, pianist in uh, in Earthworks. Uh, Ian Ballamy and Django Bates in Earthworks. These were all co-writers and very useful, very helpful guys. And, and one of the great pleasures of being a band leader is you can pick the young blood that you want to work with, uh, and they'll give you anything they can to make it work. And in in return, you can give them. Um, An international platform, which is what most young musicians... Oh, and clean sheets. And a good payday, which is what most musicians want.
1: So those latter Earthworks releases was was live? At the time, Is it just easier capturing your sound live?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think we're getting more confident all the time. The the live shows were, were being recorded, you know, for our own benefit. And everybody sort of says, well, why don't we do this live? You know, added to which you can imagine the cost... Uh, the cost goes down a fair bit when you do it live because you're not tying people up in studios for three weeks. So we moved to quite a bit of live recording and that was the way the world was going. You know, it was all moving from big studios in London that had been the case in the 70s and Abbey Road and all that with Roy Harper in the mid-70s through to live recordings and then eventually home recordings, as we now are. So, musicians are in a permanent state of transit in between one method of making music and onto another. And it just, I just went with the flow, yeah. really. Record companies were failing all over the place. Nobody was going to throw Earthworks, um, you know, a huge recording budget and say, go to Abbey Road for a month. They're not going to do that, obviously. So, uh, you cut your cloth according to the cost, as it were. And um, that's what we did and easy to do mm. with modern technology. Mm. In, in When we started doing live recordings, of course, it was several recording trucks and it cost an <laughs> absolute fortune. By the time I finished in nine, or 2009, 2007, perhaps, mm. in Iridium, I mean, it's a small box, and a guy with some little microphones, and it's relatively easy.
1: And then to close, Bill, um, in terms of compiling such a comprehensive set, Were there any surprises when you were sort of digging in the material, some lesser known parts of your catalogue that perhaps you'd forgotten about and were surprised by in a positive way?
2: Oh, I'm not sure I was surprised. Um, Bear in mind, I couldn't put on this everything I wanted to. That's because there's a time limit of six CDs. It's only going to be some 60 or 70 tracks, which sounds like a lot. But you'd be surprised at the stuff that uh, I couldn't get licensed. Um, and that might have been fun to have some of that. And then again, the stuff I could get licensed and that turned up uh, on the record. And I think that what, you, what, what you're allowed legally to license is a big determinant of what you can and cannot use on such a compilation. But 99% of what was on my original list for tracks, we did in fact license, which is, which is a thrill. And BMG have been eternally helpful with the entire project. And it's a big project. I mean, we've been working on this for eight months. It really
1: shows. And as you say, it is the a, a definitive collection from your, your music. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Bill. It's much appreciated.
2: <laughs> All right, Jason. Pleasure to talk to you. All right. Take care then.
1: All right. Cheers. Bye-bye.
2: Bye.